I can't speak for everybody, but for most of the strippers I've met, we're strippers because we like to make a lot of money. Exotic dancers exist in a state of limbo as far as the sex industry is concerned. They are among the most public of sex workers, as their jobs are legal, and they are widely celebrated and fetishized in pop culture. Their cast is the life of the party, like main ads, the mythological mistresses of Dionysus, catalyzing and acting as centerpieces to the raving, debauched fantasies of repressed businessmen and bachelor parties alike. But for all the reverence they receive in music videos, strippers are not exempt from the pitfalls of being sex workers. They are often just as stigmatized as those working the illegal side of the industry. And of course, once the revelry ends and their humanity comes into play, they, along with the rest of the party favors, are often treated as being just as disposable. Last week, after JLo featured a strip routine prominently in her halftime performance, there was a lot of talk on Twitter about the amount of cognitive dissonance a culture must have to be willing to monetize and idolize a star of her magnitude getting on the pole while sex workers were being aggressively targeted by law enforcement all over Florida due to that pesky Super Bowl sex trafficking moral panic. Arguably, the more pertinent bit of dissonance, though, would be the way in which we lift up and enjoy the art and performance of exotic dancing, while the majority of strippers are barely afforded the most basic of workplace protections. The way strip clubs operate is basically halfway between a whorehouse and a hair salon. Most of the time, dancers are not employees of the club itself, but contractors who pay a nightly booth running fee. They are 1099 contractors, which means that virtually every stripper is their very own walking small business. They have to file a Schedule C with their taxes. Of course, bonus, it means they can reasonably write off getting their nails done. And depending on the city and state, they must maintain annual licenses. They are not offered health insurance. They are not offered workman's compensation or PTO or any of the other perks of traditional full-time employment. They are almost exclusively non-union. So what, you may be thinking? Doesn't sound that much different from being an Uber driver or a freelance writer. To which I say, yes, you've got it. It is very similar, and it's a lot to keep track of. Now, I could wax political about the pros and cons of self-employment forever. Hell, I've been doing it forever. But specific to strippers, and incidentally to Uber drivers, the line between employee and contractor is drawn on very thin legal ground. Strip clubs ride that line very closely because they control what the worker does how the worker does the job, and control many of the business aspects of the worker's job, such as how and when they get paid. All things that the IRS says dictate a worker be classified as a traditional employee. But they manage to sidestep these regulations by doing things like giving workers just enough freedom on scheduling, not reimbursing their expenses, and not reporting their cash tips for them. It's sketchy as hell, but you know, the money's good. Anyway, some things to keep in mind when you go to tip next time, eh? The seedy, Wild West vibe of many strip clubs, coupled with the awe-striking art of pole performance, and the fact that being able to be sexy while dancing is so, so many light years away from my personal experience, leaves me endlessly fascinated by these establishments, and I intend to feature strippers heavily over the course of this podcast. Today, we have Molly, who worked for several years as a dancer in and around Boston. Molly leaned on dancing to get by after ending the relationship with her oldest child's father. 
and after some bouncing around, trying to find the right fit in a club, discovered she truly loved it. As a young and newly sober mother, the opportunity to get paid to doll up and socialize was invaluable to her mental health and self-esteem. Sadly, some of Stripping's just-barely-on-the-right-side-of-the-law trappings, namely a lack of worker protections from predatory male management, ran her out of the industry. Molly and I talked today about her fond memories from that now-former life her sadness that some scumbag sucked the wind out of her sails, and how she found meaning and joy again in harm reduction, specializing in outreach to street-based sex workers at her hometown syringe exchange. A quick programming note, today's episode does mention the occurrence of an emotional fallout from sexual assault. Use your judgment. into stripping I had my daughter was a six month old and I had broken up with her father a couple months before that and um I was kind of just like down and out with um no job and no money not really being supported and I had just gotten sober um like a week before I tried out at my first club and I just kind of went for it like I showed up to this club in Boston and I didn't know what I was doing or what to expect and I tried out and I started the next day on day shift what was it like it was scary to be honest the club that I started in is not a club I'd recommend for somebody starting as a beginner at all um it's a it's a kind of like a rough club so in Boston there's only actually two strip clubs in Boston Massachusetts isn't highly recommended for like a state for stripping. It's just not a great one. Most strippers will travel to Providence, Rhode Island, because there's a lot of really great clubs and a lot of people go there specifically for the strip clubs. But I wasn't driving that far. So I traveled into Boston and I didn't read anything about any of the strip clubs there. I just sort of saw one on Yelp and showed up. For my like my tryout wasn't really a tryout. I went up to the owner's office and he wanted to see my stomach to make sure I didn't have stretch marks, which is like totally bizarre to me that clubs will like alienate a certain type of woman because customers have so many different preferences. But whatever, he hired me for the next day. I mean, it's a it's a pretty (laughs) like buttoned up weird culture up there anyway. I mean, you have like a lot of bro culture in Boston and the kind of college thing. So I guess it kind of makes sense that they would be um, extra shallow and terrible. So shallow and terrible. But actually for this club, they were known as like the kind of more. So there's the glass slipper and there's centerfold. Centerfold is the club that notoriously only hires like blonde women with like big fake boobs and like tiny everything else and that's Mm -hmm. it like no tattoos nothing um I have a couple friends that have worked there and I've always known that I I couldn't get hired at centerfolds it just wasn't ever gonna happen right I mean aside from when I first tried out and I'm happy that I didn't try out there because I couldn't have dealt with that rejection (laughs) right so I tried out at the slipper and he hired me the first day and um I started the next day and I had no clue what was going on. I mean, I showed up, I put on my little outfit and my, my new pleasers, which are like, for those that don't know, like the main brands, like heels that strippers wear. I like walked around like a baby giraffe learning how to walk because that's how (laughs) most strippers look on their first day or first night. 
And um, I got totally scared. I was really scared of the other girls for, like, no reason. And it was not what I expected at all. Like, I expected, I expected two things. I expected the other girls to be, like, terrifying and hate me. But I also expected, like, it to be super glamorous, which it also wasn't at all. And it was the, the setup at the Glass Slipper is really strange. Um, so the stage isn't connected to the bar like other strip clubs. The stage is about three feet away from the bar. So customers either have to hand the bartender money to give to you or they like ball up dollar bills or make like a fucking paper airplane or something and send it oh your way. Oh my God. It's ridiculous. It's terrible. Like you're getting, it, you're getting dollar bills thrown at you in like the worst possible way. Right. And is that like just a, a layout problem or is that, I mean, that's a really odd way to have a club laid out. I've never worked in the club. I've never heard of another club like that, actually. It's it's so strange. The layout's so weird. Day shift customers are usually a lot different than night shift customers, too. And that's also something I wasn't really prepared for. Like, day shift customers are usually, usually a lot of girls that work day shift have like regular customers that come in and see them day shift isn't that busy at a lot of places so there was also like not a lot of people for me to talk to there was men that were there to see specific girls and you know I walked out my first day like disappointed with a hundred dollars after having dollar bills crumpled up and thrown at me from three feet away from me for most of my day there but day shift is where they tend to start people though I would imagine because just because of that initiation exactly and um, I was told that my first week there, I had to I had to sell, like, a certain amount of drinks because you made, like, $4 off each drink that you sold, which was awkward for me because I had just stopped drinking. So I had to tell the bartender there, like, you need to make my drinks virgin and, like, not tell anybody. So there was that. And then I had to sell a certain amount of lap dances, which at, went okay for me eventually. Like, I kind of got a flow of talking to people within my first week there. And I had to sell a certain amount of champagne rooms, too, which um, I a lot didn't of learn how to do. Like, it was a lot of pressure for me. I was 22 years old. It was my first week stripping. I had just stopped drinking, too. So, like, that was I was going through a lot. I had a six-month-old. I just got out of a relationship. And champagne rooms totally scared the shit out of me. Like, I didn't know what went on in a champagne room, and I wasn't ready for it yet. Yeah, it doesn't sound like there's a lot of, um, <laughs> there's not really much training that goes into, it's like, it seems to me that when when you start dancing, it's like, you show up and they're like, all right, now, I don't know, dance or whatever. And you're like, but aren't there like procedural things that I feel like I need to know? Yeah. <laughs> like, <laughs> yes. So you like, started at McDonald's and they're like, they like gave you no POS training, but they're like, if your drive, you know, your drive through time goes over a minute, you're fired. And you're like, what? I yes. don't even know what that means. <laughs> yeah, it was sort of like that there, which is like why I say that that club is not beginner friendly, because no other club that I've worked at has been like that and that intense. Like other clubs that I've worked at, they're like, you can kind of do whatever you want so long as you pay your your house fee. That was kind of the trade off is that they didn't have a house fee there, but you had to you had to meet all these like goals. I mean, they totally attracted enough customers anyways, being one of the only two strip clubs in Boston. Mm-hmm. However, uh, it's it just, it's a totally bizarre setup there. My first club sucked. I hated it. I still hate it. <laughs> <Wait>. <laughs> <laughs> so how long were you there? 
like a mom. Where'd you go after that? So I kind of bopped around to a couple different places. Um, I camped for a while after that too. Like I didn't strip consistently for a little while after that. I would like try out at a couple places. I'd dance a couple weeks there and I'd leave. Maybe two years after that, I started dancing consistently again at a club in Billerica, Massachusetts, um, which is like this little weird town. And that cl- uh, this club was really weird. It's the only 18 plus club in Mass and there's no bar. <laughs> so mm. it, um, it attracted like kids that are still in their senior year of high school. Like that just oh turned Oh my 18. God. Yeah, great so tippers. Totally horrible tippers. But I actually made a lot of money there. And I stayed there for like a pretty decent amount. Like I stayed there for quite a few years. That was like what I consider my home club. And I was really lucky with dancing in the sense that a lot of girls that I know and that I've talked to that have danced kind of have been like really competitive which I mean dancing with your coworkers, like it is competitive because it's it's sales and like you're selling your time and your your services but it was very family like there we were all really close for the most part um we're still really close I'm still really good friends with most of the girls that I work with there if it didn't shut down I'd still work there we had fun. So you moved on um, and did a couple other clubs. And then you mentioned that you had some bad experiences that made you rethink your involvement in the industry. <coughs> I'm sorry. So my last club that I danced at was a club in Revere, Massachusetts, which is like five minutes outside Boston. It might as well just be part of Boston. And I was there for, I don't know, a, a couple months. The club itself was, the money was incredible. Like it was, the money was insane. I was doing so well there, which made me look past a lot of the like bad experiences I was having there. Yeah. Um, I've had bartending jobs like that. (laughs) Yeah. Right. I mean, you just money, money talks, money talks sometimes, you know? And I mean, a lot of sex workers that I know will agree with me that money, money talks, but I actually, I was like sitting uh, at the beginning of my shift one night. And some guy who was like totally shit faced, he came up to me and he's like, you're, you're coming for a dance with me. And I'm like, um, a little bit aggressive, but okay. Like I haven't had one yet. And the house fee there was $125 a night or no, I'm sorry. It was a hundred, but if you were like five minutes late, it was 125. (laughs) Yeah. Oh, okay. Real serious. Considering the fact that they have like 30 girls on a night there. So they're definitely, and the club's insanely busy. But I digress. So I went back and I um, started dancing with him and he just like totally sexually assaulted me. And the um, security heard it all and definitely saw it all because in the dance room, the booths are all mirrored so you can see everything that happens. Um, And I told them afterwards and they laughed at me. And I like, it was one of those things where I didn't really process like what had happened yet. Like, I was yeah. just like, oh, my God, like, what what the fuck was this? And, like, why are they laughing at me? And this is bizarre. Like, am, am I dreaming? Am I in the twilight zone? What's going on? Somebody came up to me after, and they were like, do you know who that guy was? And I was like, no, I have no fucking idea who that guy was. And they were like, that's the um, owner. Nice. So, yeah. And I, I finished my shift, and I went in the next night, and, and I worked my shift. And then, like it had like 
it, it took like a couple days to like really set in like what had happened. Cause I mean, that's what happens with trauma. Like it doesn't come automatically. I just, I couldn't do it anymore. And unfortunately with my job, I can only really work weekends and clubs don't accommodate people that can only work weekends. So that kind of ended my career with stripping, which I'm not totally happy with. And I think that that was kind of the worst violation actually is the fact that this man ended my career for me when I was not ready to end my career at all. Like I, I would have stripped for years longer because I, I love it. I, th- I think that I feel like it's a pervasive theme, right? That in places where there is a lot of money flying around, management feels extreme, becomes extremely entitled uh, and can get really, really abusive. And I think that's across all industries. I mean, if you, you know, think about, um, I don't know, like Wall Street jobs or whatever, like you think about the way that people in those positions are abused by management, screamed at, you know, can't see their family. Like it becomes almost a cultish environment. And and the same thing can happen in clubs where it's like, I can do whatever I want to these girls because they're making a shit ton of money with me. And then Mm -hmm. you add on, you know, all the cultural stigmas around uh, sexual assault and you add on that, you know, y'all generally are not unionized and it can create a really toxic environment in the wrong places. Yeah, it becomes an extremely toxic environment with management, and it sucks because it starts to become a, a toxic environment with, like, my my coworkers, too, and it becomes, like, secretive and something that you can't talk about because you start to fear, like, retaliation against, like, that you're going to get retaliated against by either one of the other girls or by the management if you do see it, say anything. I found out that one of the um, other girls that was a little bit newer started around the same time as me I guess on day shift that same day the manager had forced her to give his friend it was either a hand job or a blow job so he was just like on a roll that day I guess right cocaine is a hell of a drug yeah oh yeah he was on on some shit but he was just a total piece of shit um it was like it sucked because it was the highest paying place I'd ever worked but like the place that ended my career what was it like dancing sober? Like, I mean, you're going into working in any nightlife position uh, in sobriety has got to be challenging. It was surprisingly not that challenging, actually. I think I was just so used to it because I didn't know any other way at that point. You hadn't um, developed a bunch of, um, you know, years of habits and rituals and drinking buddies in those clubs. So. Yeah, exactly. I mean, everyone just kind of knew that I didn't drink. Nobody really pressured me to drink. I mean, when when I danced in Billerica, like, no, there was no bar there. So, like, there wasn't people buying you drinks. But all the girls would bring in nips, and they'd all go drink them in the bathroom. And, like, we'd all hang out in the bathroom when it was slow. And, like, I'd hang out in, in there with them, and they were, like, throwing back nips, and we were all having a good time. I mean, I didn't care when they were drinking around me. It never bothered me. But dancing, dancing sober was actually, it was kind of fun because I remembered everything at the end of the night. Like, I remembered every funny story. I told them everything that they did and we all fucking laughed and everything was ridiculous. It was just fun. But I think it would have been difficult had I gotten sober after I had started dancing. What makes a good club environment? It's hard to say. I think it depends. It depends on a couple things. It depends on your management. Like at, at 
the club in Villarica. Um, I made my own hours. And I actually, I can't speak for everybody there because I was actually, for some reason, the manager there. She was a woman too, which is like, I mean, that's the only club I've worked at that was owned by a woman. Mm-hmm. She, she let me make my own hours and a couple other um, women there too. So that was really great. Um, that made everything a lot more laid back there and it made most of us a lot happier. Shocker, and, women, women in management make things <laughs> run more smoothly. <laughs> usually a lot easier that way. It, it just depends on everybody's attitude, I think. Like, it's a total collaborative effort to make a good club environment. So, I, I mean, ownership is a huge thing. Your, like, dancing coworkers is a huge thing. Like, when I danced in Billerica, there were times where things got catty. And there were times where girls got accused of stealing or, like doing stuff to each other's outfits or stealing each other's regulars, which is, you're going to find that at any fucking club that you dance at. Like, don't, don't steal somebody's regular, please. Just don't. (laughs) Um, And if you do it on accident, (laughs) apologize. (laughs) Oh God, please apologize. But for the most part, like, it just really wasn't like that with us. And like bartenders, um, all of our bar, well, There wasn't a bar. There was a juice bar in Billerica. Excuse me. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. That's, that's it's funny because it's like this is an underage club in you know outside of Boston, but that almost feels like a kind of Portlandy thing to have happen. Like <laughs> really, I've never been to juice Portland. Bar. You, sh- you should. Well, there's a really really great stripping culture there, but I've also, heard. You know, there's vegan strip clubs and all this. When I think juice bar at the strip club. <laughs> Oh, we're in Oregon. There was a juice bar. So the bartenders for the juice bar, they were laid back and like, they just like funny. Like we just sat like shot the shit and there was no pressure to do anything. And there was no fucking pressure to hustle. Like just don't put pressure on people and like let things flow naturally. I think that's what made such a great environment for that place. And that's what made us all kind of successful in that place too, is that there was no pressure and we could work at our own pace. I remember when I used to work like six days a week, I was exhausted. Like it's the most tiring job I've ever had. And I've had a lot of jobs. It's super physically demanding. It's super physically demanding, especially for like the strippers that do like the crazy pole work, which is not as much as you would think. But like for the ones that do, oh my God, I I don't know how some of them do the shit that they do. It's crazy. (laughs) It's so cool. Yeah, it's like um, Olympic level. (laughs) Yeah, it is really some Olympic level shit. But I think for the most part, I think the lack of pressure and just like the collaborative effort to just be decent human beings to each other is what makes such a great environment. And that's what makes a club work well. What were some of the things that you really liked about stripping compared to other jobs? The pay, of course. I liked coming home with a money sack. That was always cool. I like being able to kind of adjust my hours as needed. For most clubs, you you get to like not really make your own hours, but it's for, from what I saw, it was a lot like looser. I liked having like mostly all female coworkers, aside from like um most clubs had like male management, but like all like my dancers, I loved working with them. We had a lot of fun, a lot of shenanigans going on. And I, I like I like dancing. I really like dancing. I have a pole in my house. It's actually not up right now, which is very sad for me. I still take like pole classes, which is something that like I really found that I needed to do after I had to stop dancing. It's just like good for me, like mentally. And I like I, I was a um, 
cosmetologist for a while and I like getting I like getting dressed up I like wearing the outfits I like wearing the shoes I like doing my makeup like I love that shit yeah I mean you get to be really really unabashedly girly and and yes have you know a high femme expression of your sexuality or your gender and in, in a way that is you don't you know we don't really have a whole lot of opportunities to do that I don't really I don't put on fake eyelashes to like lay around the house like I did like my Friday night last night was I watched True Lies with my grandmother and and, and crocheted <laughs> <laughs> you know <laughs> I'm like saving up my my fake eyelashes for Mardi Gras or whatever but when you have a job like like dancing or anything that's really in nightlife you can go you know balls to the wall and especially as a young mom with a really young child you the you know the ability to just like fem it up is probably really fun yeah and I think that was huge too and I think like I mean Sabrina was my dancer name and Sabrina was like my alter ego too I mean Sabrina is not was either Sabrina's totally still here Sabrina's not going anywhere ever she still comes out <laughs> all the time <laughs> But I think just, like, having, like, that other persona and, you know, when, when I go to work now, like, I love my job. I mean, I, being a harm reductionist is a huge part of me, too. I could never do anything else in my life. Like, I found, I found my calling, I think. Going to work and being able to, like, be something else besides, like, a mom and a wife was a huge thing for me as well. Especially because there was a time where I, I was just dancing full time. For, you know, the daytime, I was a stay-at-home mom. I had just had my son. Getting to go to work at night was actually, it was hard work, but it was also, like, a good thing for me mentally, too. How, uh, is your partner supportive of your, of your dancing? And how, how do you integrate, like, the amount of not only physical, but sexual energy that you have to output at work? Like, how do you reconcile that with, you know, you've got two kids, you're in the slog, you know, you're in a relationship, all this stuff. But like, how do you kind of balance those things out in a way that allows you to have um, a relationship that thrives? So my partner is so supportive of my dancing and I wouldn't work with somebody that wasn't. It just, it wouldn't work. Um, I can't be with somebody that's like jealous and just can't like have an open mind it just it it wouldn't work with me it wouldn't work with my personality and it wouldn't work with my values and it wouldn't work with the way that I am it didn't really like affect like my sexuality and like our sex life but when I worked in Revere it actually really started to because the club was like so hands-on like you couldn't really tell somebody no like you you couldn't really set your own boundary so when I came home at night, I did not want to be fucking touched. <laughs> like, right. Like you have hand on me. You have creepers at work <clears throat> clawing at your boobs and you have little kids cl- cl- clawing at your entire body at home. Yes. Like, and things, And you're just like, I have a bubble right now. <laughs> yes. Please work, just don't touch. <laughs> and work stress is going to kill, you know, it's really hard on relationships too. Yes. Yeah, yeah. it's, it is hard. Um, But luckily, I'm with a really supportive partner. And I think the thing that was hardest, probably for him, was hearing about bad experiences that I had and being able to be supportive in a way that wasn't overbearing and in a way that allowed me to process things on my own and in a way that I wanted to. Because I don't like my partners to tell me what to do or how to react to things or 
anything like that. I just, I like to be able to figure things out on my own for the most part. Right. Um, while having somebody to support me. And yeah, we got to talk it yeah. through, you know, it's, it's, we got to talk it through. Yeah. I, I'm one of those people too. Like if I tell you what's going on with me and I'm venting, uh, any solution that you give me, I will shoot down unequivocally. <laughs> Even mm-hmm. if it ends up being the solution, you know, the path that I take later to solve the problem, I just don't want to fucking hear it. Yeah, I I don't just just don't don't tell me anything. <laughs> uh huh. Does he have those same struggles with the job you're in now? You come home and and if you have something to bitch about with work, and he's like, I just want to tell her how to fix it. Yeah, I think he does. It's actually our dynamic with my work now is really funny because the place I work now. Um, is in my hometown and I actually used to work about 10 minutes outside of Boston before where there was a ton of street-based sex work so it was really easy for me to like kind of hone in on like what I like to do there um but my workplace now is in my my hometown and there's not really any of that (laughs) so it's I mostly focus on syringe exchange and I'm kind of building this syringe exchange up um because it's needs some um extra attention this this place I'm working at right now it just it needs to be built up a lot and get new clients and and just stuff like that so I'm working a lot on syringe exchange right now and um my husband's also in recovery and um he used to be an IV heroin addict so like when I like talk about things and like ideas about things to do and like programs to start and stuff like that like he has really good advice and stuff but at at the time when I'm talking about things like I don't want to hear his fucking advice right (laughs) even though it's always really good because he has lived experience it's like you know save the Q&A for afterwards I just need to talk right now yeah (laughs) Uh uh-huh yeah so how did you transition into doing harm reduction I was I was dancing full-time and I wanted to stop dancing full-time and dance part-time maybe and do like a nine to five because I was tired. Um, it's hard to dance until one in the morning. And I, when I, this is when I was dancing in Billerick and I lived about 50 minutes to an hour away from my club. So I didn't get home till two in the morning, didn't fall asleep till 2.45 and my kids are up at 6 a.m. And then I do it all over again. Why do kids do that? <laughs> I don't know why they do that. It's, I, I don't know why they're biologically like inclined to wake up that early, but it's terrible. I slept until 11 today and I like woke up like, like I like shot out of bed. Like, oh my God, what does my apartment look like right now? <laughs> and yeah, you're like, there's... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you're like either everyone's dead or they've bombed my home. Yeah. <laughs> they bombed my home with gummy snacks and muffins. Oh, oh my God. So you were. <laughs> to bring your hours down and yeah so, so I am um, I wanted like a regular nine-to-five job so I started answering all these Facebook ads and I must have answered a uh, syringe exchange like without remembering uh-huh <laughs> and, um, I got a call back from the place and I ignored it because I had such a shitty resume because there's so many gaps in it mm-hmm. <laughs> that I were you were putting back. dancing on your resume then no no I, I no. never put that because I was just like, and of course, when you're a mom, it's here. like I mean, a lot of moms have that challenge yeah. when they decide to reenter the traditional workforce is they're like, well, I haven't worked in five years except like camming or something or maybe like, you know, selling shit on Etsy or whatever it is that, that moms, you know, do. And it's like, yeah, how do you how do you get back into the traditional work economy? 
Yeah, exactly. So the resume building is very hard, especially when you've been dancing for so long. And then, like, I would try, like, some, like, regular day jobs, but uh, I'd never like them enough to, to keep them. So I'd be there for, like, I had so many, like, three-month jobs on my resume, which also So to be fair, terrible. I'm sure there's a lot of, yeah, right. There's, there's a, probably a lot of really good and fun ways you could spend dancing to, to bolster a resume because you learn a lot of skills. It's sales. Mm-hmm. It's sales. Like, I'm a great salesperson now. I could totally go into sales. Yeah, so I must have answered this ad for a syringe exchange um, in Lynn, Massachusetts. And they called me and I ignored it. So I was like, fuck this. I'm not driving out to Lynn, which is 45 minutes away from you for an interview that's not going to fucking go anywhere. Like, it's just not happening. Right. And then they called me again and I didn't answer. And then I must have had my husband down because it was like a, a Facebook job ad that I answered, one of those. Right. And I must have had his number down somehow was like, some kind of like other contact so they called him and he called me and he's they like really needed don't... people <laughs> yeah I guess so or they really liked my shitty resume and um great and they were like uh he called me back and he's like can you like go in for an interview because like you, you know you never know like you might like this place right. so I and also they will not stop calling us just go <laughs> yeah just please go so I I went in I looked around at the place and I'm like, what even is this? Like, I don't even know what I applied to. And um, my former boss now is like, oh, this is, you know, a a syringe exchange. I'm like, oh, cool. Like, this is really cool. They had something there called a bad date sheet. And it's an anonymous report where if like a sex worker is, you know, assaulted, raped, robbed, she can come in. Um, file out a report it, where she can put down somebody's, you know, description of how they look, um, any description like uh, color of the hair, color of the eyes, skin color, tattoos, facial hair, whether or not they're a smoker, uh, what street they were picked up on, what happened, um, license plate number. We always take out like two digits of the license plate just to like have room for error. And we put it all on the sheet and we hand it out to all of the workers in the area so they have it and they know who to look out for and I I saw the sheet and I was like oh wow like I have to work here yeah this place is amazing sounds that does sound wonderful like they're very uh supportive they're uh, yeah their work is incredible so um my former boss's poker face is insane like, you you never know what this lady is thinking ever. So she did this first interview, and I was like, I have no idea how this went. I called my husband. I'm like, this place is incredible, but I have no idea if this lady liked me or not. And I got called, like, two weeks later for a second interview. So I had thought that I didn't get the job. And their second interview is you go in and you meet with two people that use the program. So, like, two people that, like, use drugs, and they interview you. Oh, that's so smart. It's so smart. It's so cool. And the, and um, they had a um, couple interview me. And one of the, the girl um, is a sex worker. And she has a boyfriend. And they've been together for a few years. And, you know, he's her partner. And they're, they're homeless. And they're awesome. I love them. And so they interviewed me. And I guess that they really liked me. So I got a third interview. And the third interview is you meet with the entire staff. Oh and God. they're allowed to ask you questions. 
So I met with them (laughs) and I got the job and it was like a fucking three month interview process. I just love the place and I love my job and I actually quit dancing for about two months into it because I didn't know how they would react to it. Yeah, the overlap between the nonprofit world and the and sex work like even places that are very supportive uh or kind of say that they are or places that lend resources to sex workers sometimes it can get complicated when there's overlap between the two I mean organizations have to really learn to put their money where their mouth is because if you want to help sex workers like you you need to give them opportunities to be helpful in ways beyond just kind of like throwing them pity resources. Yes, exactly. And I mean, I feel like I kind of should have figured that because I was told during my interview process that like they hire people that use drugs. I'm like, you don't have to be sober to work there. And like, as long as you come in and are able to like perform your job duties, that it's, it's okay. So the place is like really progressive and amazing, but I worked there for about two months and harm reductionists don't make a lot of money and we definitely don't do it for the pay we do it because we love our jobs and um we fall in love with a field that pays us really shit money so I ended up like just not being able to pay the bills like me and my husband's income so we just couldn't cover it so I was like fuck it like I'm gonna go back to dancing Um, my club will let me work one or two days a week I'm gonna go make like the extra you know like six seven hundred bucks and that's gonna help us out immensely I felt like I had to talk to my boss about this and let her know what I was doing. So I did. Like, I gave her, like, full disclosure. You know, I'm going to go back to dancing one or two nights a week, and I have to do it to pay my bills. And I didn't really know how she was going to react. Like, I just wasn't sure. And she was like, oh, awesome. And I was like, oh, thank God. (laughs) (laughs) Realistically, I'm sure that... You know, I mean, on a, if if they are a practical person, they would rather have you take on a second job than lose you, right? Because there's such high turnover in that field. So she was actually extremely supportive of it, and I ended up disclosing to all my coworkers. And actually, um, I ended up doing a presentation at a harm reduction conference in Maine on how to make spaces safer for sex workers, and how to run one of our bad um day sheets. And I disclosed during the conference that I was a sex worker because I, I was dancing at that time. And so, I mean, I pretty much fully disclosed to most people what I did do or, or what I was doing at the time. And um, I practiced my presentation on a lot of our program participants. So most of them knew what I what I did. It's it's OK. I mean, like you said, like you if we're gonna like make spaces safe and supportive for sex workers like we need to give them space to be able to like have platforms and to have jobs that will help other sex workers because I mean I you know am not somebody that like stripped to put myself through college or something but I gained lived experience through stripping which I think is a lot more valuable than a degree for what I actually do I think sex workers having lived experience is something that's really important if you're going to be working professionally with other sex workers. It's interesting to me, like, we have this cultural narrative about how, like, strippers are all putting themselves through college or whatever, or they're all, like, single moms or or whatever, what have you. And it's like, is this really just a way to make stripping 
more palatable, like I'm doing this, but I won't do it forever kind of a thing. Like what's the, you know, what's the rub there? Why can't somebody just need to have a job? Would you say that to somebody who works at Target? Like (laughs) Exactly. Like why are we held to such a high standard? Like right. why do you going to law school or else you're just, you know, otherwise why are you doing this? I don't know, because we live in a capitalist society. Because <laughs> I need to live, because I need to pay my bills and I have rent and I have kids and I have I, I like to buy things sometimes. I don't know, because I like right. to get my hair done. I don't fucking know. What what uh, are some of the challenges in your current line of work that um you struggle with? Being financially responsible is actually the biggest one. Um, and that is something that I wish I ha- I trained myself to have a little bit more discipline with when I was stripping is trying to save some money because I could have. I mean, I didn't need to be so extravagant when I was dancing. Right. <laughs> and um, that's it's kind of yeah, it's it's a problem for me. Like I'm. You know, I have five more days till I get paid right now, and I only have a couple hundred bucks. And I, you know, that's living uh, near Boston. I, I don't know what it's like in near Portland, but li- the Massachusetts is one of the most expensive places to live in the U.S. It's very expensive to live here. I mean, I have a 750 square foot apartment, and it's really fucking expensive to live in it. Gas is expensive. Everything's expensive. Yeah, um, you have a shit ton of tolls everywhere just everything and you know we're trying to buy a house this year too which I think is going to happen actually no I know it's going to happen I'm trying to say I know it's going to happen and then it's going to happen <laughs> we but are manifesting we're manifesting <laughs> I have a vision board behind me dude I like right. <laughs> I'm doing it <laughs> but that's probably the biggest challenge with my new job and also this harm reduction agency I'm at is very fucking different than my old one like, at my old one, it was so just, like, like, everybody knew I was a sex worker at my old one, and nobody cared, and, I mean, my uh, new program manager that I work with, we started on the same day, and she knows that I was one, um, she actually knows because she was at my conference in Maine, Okay. so she, she sat through my whole spiel there, um, I, I would have told her anyways, though, and it's just it's a very different vibe like the things would happen in Lynn that were just like totally like ridiculous and just funny and it's just not quite like that at the syringe exchange in my town yet but we're kind of trying to make the vibe more like that right now we're doing a lot of redecorating like I started working there and it didn't even look like a fucking syringe exchange but I don't even know how to describe it. It looks like a clinical setting, which a syringe exchange isn't really supposed to look like. It's supposed to be okay. welcoming to drug users, like a spot to hang out, like a non-judgmental place where you could, a, a breath of fresh air, you know, like a place where you can yeah. just kind of relax and not get harassed about treatment and not get harassed about your choices at the time and just be able to like chill out, be treated like a human for a little bit be able to have some conversation some coffee my kind of goal right now is to try to make the space a little bit more like that and try to be able to welcome some more drug users in because my town actually really needs that we have a lot of drug users here that we're not reaching right now what's the prevailing what's the prevailing um substance abuse problem in your area is it opioids it's opioids yeah so we have fentanyl in massachusetts we don't really have heroin anymore 
Uh, you'll see it here and there. A lot of people claim that they have heroin. Um, I think that if they tested it more, they would find that they have fentanyl, not heroin. <laughs> and fentanyl is a lot shit. stronger than heroin, too. Yeah, so uh, I do a lot of Narcan trainings. And I, there's actually, the old Narcan was two milligrams, the new one's four milligrams, specifically because fentanyl's stronger than heroin. And you Say, because all the fentanyl. drugs are getting stronger. All the drugs are stronger, and everything's stronger, and, you know, people's habits get, you you just have to start using more and more, and then you're seeing more overdoses, and it's scary. I mean, I was thinking about, like, you know, it just turned 2020, and it's a new decade, and I was thinking about the last decade, and then I was thinking, oh my god, like, I had, like, a lot of friends die in the last decade, and I'm 27 years old. Right. So that's, like, a scary thing. I just had a really good friend of mine die in July. And he left behind two kids. And, like, one is the same age as my oldest. And, like, that's scary. What's your take on this on this opioid epidemic? So, I don't, I think of it more as the war on drugs than the opioid epidemic, to be honest. Mm-hmm. Um, I think we, as a whole country, really need to take a good hard look at how we treated the war on drugs when it started. You know, when, like crack really hit the black community and we started throwing people in jails like crazy and they're still fucking there today and that when opiates hit the suburban white community suddenly it's an epidemic and it's a public health (laughs) crisis which it is but it was back then too and there needs to be a lot of law reform around this in order to kind of like balance the scales we need to be we do, there needs to be a lot of law reform going on around this. There needs to be less focus on putting the, all the blame on drug dealers, to be honest, which is like a very controversial thing that I say, but it's something I believe in very strongly. There's a lot of talk about like drug trafficking rings around here, and it's always like in the newspaper. But the thing about like catching big drug traffickers and stuff like that is that there's always going to be another one. So it's not really helping the problem. Yeah, it's just whack-a-mole with a ton of public resources. Yeah, I mean, all it's really doing is satisfying the public with placing the blame on somebody. Like, everybody wants someone to blame, right? Like, we have my generation, like, dropping dead left and right. And we all want somebody to blame because we're sad and, and we're angry and we're losing people. But we're just kind of blaming the wrong people. I mean, I I saw a news article in Lynn and they arrested 37 people in like a you know quote-unquote drug trafficking ring and half of the people are my old participants who are not part of a drug trafficking ring like they're either either middlemanning to satisfy their own habit or they were just like existing on the street so it's just like this it's just made out to be something it's not a lot of the time Yeah, and it's, I mean, further involvement with the criminal justice system is not going to make somebody less likely to, you know, continue to be in active addiction. I mean, when you heap additional hardship and impose more uh, poverty-inducing circumstances onto an already very put-upon group of people, it's not really going to very likely make them more receptive to getting clean and sober or or not want or wanting to like not uh you know if you have it in your head like I do heroin to relax well what makes you need to relax more than the fact that you have to go to court all the fucking time and you have inescapable debt and you feel like the whole system is out to get you 
the great thing about harm reduction is that we get to focus on any positive change and it really builds people's self-esteem and like any positive change is like you know praising people for wiping down with alcohol swabs before they inject like that's a positive change or maybe they're not doing you know hit heroin or fentanyl anymore and they're just injecting cocaine and crack now and and testing it before to make sure there's no fentanyl in it like that's a positive change mm-hmm. uh you know you you get on methadone that's a positive change and it's controversial for some fucking reason that i don't know why i mean just the uh, fact that people are coming in and utilizing the the resources that you have for them is a positive change right i yes. mean the fact that you have somebody who is checking in regularly whether it's to get methadone or it's to you know exchange syringes or whatever every time that they interact with um clinic or center personnel they are that much closer to you know, making some level of improvement, whether it's to their overall lives or just their uh, immediate safety. Exactly. Yeah, anything, I mean, or just, like, recognizing the fact that, like, you're worth going into a place like that is a positive change. And it's it's self-esteem building. You know, coming out of, like, you know, your house or trap house or wherever you're living on the street. And coming into, you know, a place with with heat and a couch that you can sit for a minute and recognizing that, like, you're you're worth that time is it's a positive change. And I think we need to be meeting people's immediate needs more like that. We're not focusing on that. Like you said, we're focusing on criminalizing people and it's not helpful at all. Throwing people into jails isn't helpful. Uh, We have the drug court system, which is like huge around here. And it's just failing left, right? Like, it's just fucking terrible. Or a a lot of the drug court, you're assigned a a color. And you have to call in every day. And if your color is called, you have to go take a urine test. If you fail the urine test, you're sent to jail. Or sometimes they'll give you the option to start over on drug court. Or sometimes they'll send you to jail. And then afterwards, you have to start over on drug court. And it's just this fucking cycle. Like, like, how is that different? It's just terrible. I've met people that have been on drug court for seven years. Like, how is this isn't helpful or making like 12 step programs part of like the criminal justice system? Like, how are you going to mandate somebody to go to a fucking 12 step program? Like, how is that helpful? It's just it's not like we should be letting people define their own recovery, letting people find their own fucking way and not forcing it on people because it just doesn't work. Seems like a lot of the problems that spring from drug court problems is that there isn't a lot of consistency in how they are regulated or implemented. So there are some states or even just some municipalities that have really good outcomes with drug court, but then just the next county over even can be doing it in a completely different way. And the system is, you know, remains really punitive and it just doesn't go anywhere. So like on its face, it's a better system than than a purely punitive one, but because you have, you know, it's the same judges that are doing criminal court that are doing drug court, right? So there's, it's, it's just like the implementation is so messy that it can't be as effective as, as it could conceptually be, which is really too bad. I mean, I, I've seen, at least from what, what I've seen around the Boston area, for the most part, it's been generally ineffective. A lot of, like I said, a lot of being mandated to 12 steps, a lot of being mandated to therapeutic communities. Yeah. And then it just ends up with people being in the system, like you said, way, way longer. People would 
rather just go to jail for, you know, six months instead of being in drug court, which is like some weird limbo between being in jail and being on probation. And they're in that limbo for five, six, seven, eight years instead of just like doing 60 days in jail or something. Exactly. But it's like this like terrible cycle, especially if you have a habit that like you'd rather be on drug court and just fucking run from it than like take your time and deal with kicking an opiate habit in jail, which is horrendous. Like kicking an opiate habit in jail, they don't give you anything but like fucking ibuprofen. They're actually in in, uh, Massachusetts, a guy sued Essex County Corrections because they wouldn't give him his methadone and it's a it's his medication and he sued them and won so they have to give them this methadone in jail now which is like so we're like making strides in the right direction too and I don't mean to like speak so negatively about what's happening especially in my state now because like we are um we are like fairly progressive for the most part in Massachusetts so yeah there's there's good uh, good and bad happening here uh we're coming close than other states to opening safe consumption sites, which is a really awesome thing. I've sat in on a few of the meetings for the coalition for the safe consumption sites, and we're coming a lot closer than other places for that. What are some of the benefits of safe (laughs) consumption sites for people who aren't familiar with uh, the concept? So a safe consumption site is a place where somebody can go in and safely inject um, drugs under the supervision of a medical professional. And one of the major benefits of that is that if they, well, they're far less likely to overdose because they're being supervised by a medical professional. Um, They have access to treatment at safe consumption sites. There's syringe exchange there. So there's less like syringe crash in the street, et cetera. And also it reduces public public injection, which is a big problem in Boston right now on the Mass Ave area. There's a lot of public injection going on. And public injection is like really traumatizing for people to see. I mean, I'm like a big advocate for people being able to use drugs and being able to come off on their own time. But at the same time, I don't want to walk down the street with my kids and have them witness public injection. It's It's not fair for other people so it's like a big step in the right direction to have people be able to have places to go to inject drugs when they're still in that place it like I said reduces overdose it reduces public overdose which is another fucking traumatizing thing you know overdoses happen like really commonly in public places public bathrooms uh cars parked in parking lots And that's also really traumatizing for people that don't use drugs and aren't really familiar with drugs and don't know how to combat an overdose, don't know anything about naloxone. So there's major, major benefits for public consumption sites. They're also cheaper than intervention style. So like it's it's way cheaper to give somebody the opportunity to, you know, get loaded in a safe place versus the cost of cleaning up their public overdose or... Uh, even just involve, even just the cost of involving somebody in the criminal justice system, if you arrest them for shooting up in the bus stop or whatever, like it's people tend, people do get very into like, well, I don't want my tax dollars paying for junkies to blah, blah, blah. And it's like, you realize this is a lot fucking cheaper. 
like you realize that your tax dollars are already paying for these things, right? <laughs> right. Yeah, like you're they They're still pay for the police. Like all you really want is for your tax dollars to pay for people to be punished rather than help. Like, can you just own that? <laughs> Do you realize how much of your tax dollars go to like jails and keeping people there? Because it's a lot. <laughs> I mean, do you do a focus on public education campaigns or are you primarily direct outreach based or do you have more of a focus on legislative like or are you guys trying to take on all of that at once? Like, how is that structured in the nonprofit world uh, where you are? So where I am, we're direct outreach based. Um, We work just directly with people that are using drugs. I would love to work someday in like legislation. Um, That's kind of my I I really want to get uh, like social work or like political science degree but right now I am really enjoying doing direct outreach with people Uh, we've really been stepping out the outreach in my own community which has been awesome I love doing outreach it's it's my my job I mean I love especially being able to kind of grow the syringe exchange that I'm at now and being a part of that process like amongst my coworkers and my director and like our great team that we have is a really huge thing. I mean, it's different. Like the syringe exchange that I was at in Lynn was huge and it was busy and we saw 40 people a day. Like it was nuts. I mean, we had people like sleeping there and we had people sleeping on the floor and we were doing wound care and just had like crazy shit happening there. It's not like that at my syringe exchange now. (laughs) I mean, uh, we've been doing like three exchanges a day, which is kind of boring. But also, it makes me realize that there's so much work to be done in my own community. And I love my own community so much because I grew up here and I'm from here and I use drugs here. Where do you see yourself in like five years? Hopefully, the program I'm at will have grown a lot more and we'll be doing a lot more in this community. I like to ideally kind of start my own kind of sex worker outreach project. I've been asking around about what happened to Squat Boston because there's no branch here anymore. So I've been kind of interested in what's happening with that. Um, there's a team Clear Heels 413 branch in Massachusetts, which is awesome. But uh, the 413 area, which is the zip code for Western Massachusetts, is really far away from Boston. It's like two and a half, three hours from where I am. And I've actually worked out Western Mass and the clubs out there are, are pretty cool. But it's far away from us. So a team, a team Clear Heels 617, which is the Boston zip code, or 978, which is my zip code, uh, I'm sorry, area code, would be really cool. Sounds like you really like being, you know, getting your hands dirty, like being in the shit, being in the thick I of it. love it. I love it. It's, it's what I'm passionate about, for sure. So I love to run my own program, um, start my own project, something like that. Um, I've been reading kind of about uh, St. James Infirmary out in San Francisco, which for those that don't know is a sex worker based, like they have sex worker based like primary care, mental health counseling, counseling, uh, wellness services, syringe exchange. I'd love to see something like that happen in Boston. It's so needed. It would be amazing. A lot of ideas. Yeah, you do. Are there any (laughs) resources that you would point people towards if, um, they wanted to learn more about uh, Narcan and needle exchanges and things like that. I know that there's a kind of a rising interest in private citizens getting trained on Narcan. Pretty much all syringe exchanges will do Narcan training. So we have one stop in Gloucester, which is where I am. 
We have uh, Healthy Streets in Lynn, which is where I was. Um, a Hope in Boston. We'll go a lot of places to train on Narcan. Um, pretty much, I mean, if you look up a syringe exchange, they'll do a Narcan training. I've wanted for the last couple of years to start a campaign in New Orleans to do Narcan training for bartenders. So I feel like every food and alcohol establishment should have like an EpiPen, a uh, defibrillator, and a Narcan, and access to Narcan. Yes. So actually, um, my first day on outreach at my new syringe exchange, I took um, our new manager, who is not from my town, but I took her to like one of the dive bars in town to see if they would take Narcan. And I really wasn't sure, because where I'm from is a very, it's a fishing town, and it's very like old school Portuguese here very Catholic and just the the vibe here is very strange so I went into like this old old dive bar and we went in and offered them Narcan and we went in the middle of the day and like I don't know if like you know you or the people listening to this have seen Shameless but um there's like a bar in it and it's like all like old regulars and like whenever a new person comes in they like turn their heads like who the fuck is this and it was just like that (laughs) walking in there those are my favorite bars yes (laughs) yeah this bar is it's on the fishing pier so we walked in there and like every old fisherman turned their head like who the fuck are you guys and um we walked in and we're like hi we're from the syringe exchange downtown can we offer you guys narcan and they were like yeah and then like a bunch of these old guys got narcan too and it was so (laughs) cool and we like trained them all on how to do narcan yeah it was it was awesome and then we went to this other bar uh yesterday actually and um they're right next to the um homeless shelter in town and they actually like really could use narcan like they they really need narcan there i know that there's been overdoses that have happened there and they they wouldn't take it so what do you think that is i don't know some people feel like they're going to be liable if they don't do it correctly which is almost impossible my three-year-old could narcan somebody I mean, it's so easy. It's a nasal spray. If you can use Flonase, you can use a nasal Narcan. Um, some people feel like they just don't want it there. Some people um, say that they hate junkies and they wouldn't Narcan somebody if they overdosed in front of them. Gross. Yeah, I get that more than I would like to. And some people, I don't know, it's like they're, they're like scared of it. Like they think if they take Narcan, like somebody's just going to overdose in front of them the next day. <laughs> Like it's a bad talisman or something. Like Yeah, like it's this uh-huh. bad omen that they have at their bar. So, I don't know, but they wouldn't take it. But they did take some of our pamphlets and, like, they put them up so people know that we exist in town. Because a lot of people don't. So, at least they took something. <laughs> right. You know, you have people saying to your face, the work that you do doesn't matter. And I hate junkies and I'd be happy to watch somebody die. And then you also have you know you're watching people really really struggle and there's just so there's only so much there's a finite amount of of energy and resources that you can give them like how do you um protect yourself emotionally psychologically i don't know shut myself in my car and scream fuck you fuck you fuck you uh (laughs) 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 it's really hard to keep burning out at bay and it's really hard to like not just fucking hate people. I remember I was doing a Narcan training on a detox one time and 
sometimes like the people that are detoxing from alcohol are very unsympathetic and don't like my Narcan trainings, which they're not, they're, they don't have to be there. So I don't know if they're going to be assholes. I don't know why the fuck they come in there. Right. So some guy was in there and he was detoxing from alcohol and um, he was like a, like a younger guy too. And most of like the younger people are like very receptive to what I'm telling them. And he said something really dickish and I forget what it was. But he said something really dickish, and he was like, fuck this, I wouldn't save a junkie. And he got up and walked out, and I stood up and I yelled, I don't want a fucking asshole in my tree anyway. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, you're like, bye. Fuck. Yeah. So sometimes I just can't keep my cool, and I I don't feel like I have to. I've really kind of, since working in harm reduction, and actually, no, since working in sex work, it's really made me gain my voice, because I kind of have to. What, uh, is there anything that you would want the broader public to know uh, about the work that you do and what's important? I think what what's important in the work that I do is being a gentle and kind human being, really. I mean, that's ultimately what harm reduction comes down to, is being a gentle and kind and non-judgmental human being and just not being a shitbag. And that's what I value in other people now. The work that I do is... it it's more than what people see also like people see me go into into detoxes and and do my trainings and people see me do outreach but like they don't see me do do other things like inside the exchange like they don't see me like you know hug the crying sex worker that just got assaulted like they don't they don't see those things and that those things do happen and um harm reduction is burnout and we don't leave our work at home like it's not a job where we're able to do that and we we stay up at night and we think about I mean I can't speak for everybody but I stay up at night and I think about my participants and it's hard it's really hard work but it's really worth it work too you had um mentioned that you gave a talk recently about how to make these spaces more safe and inclusive for sex workers what um what are a few points that people can take away from that uh, discussion as far as like what uh, other nonprofits can be doing to make their spaces more safe and inclusive for sex workers? Having um, like maybe like some like sex worker directed like information, um, some resources around up on the walls, just more inclusive information, just like generally more inclusive language making sure that you're not always conflating tra- trafficking and sex work um, is very important and will make consensual sex workers feel a lot safer in your space. And also like at our, at my old place and hopefully at my new place soon, like we let sex workers put up like their art. Uh, we have a whole like sex worker board where like we had uh, sheets where like they can write down little messages we had their art up. We had like little funny comics and not like not everything has to be so fucking serious all the time, too. We like to talk and laugh and like make jokes. I have this doll and her name's Momo and she was found on this like kind of grimy street in Lynn. Like she was just found there and she's this like fucking big titty doll with like hair just like mine, like the fucking black <laughs> and shit. And she's dressed in this slutty nun costume. 
and oh she my was God. missing a fucking hand and she has like real nipples on her boobs i i checked first thing when i saw her <laughs> <laughs> and she was brought in by one of my co-workers and he was like here i found this and i was like oh cool her name's momo we, we actually had a fucking naming contest but I got really attached to her, and I attached a fucking syringe where her hand was missing, so she's oh like God. Edward's <laughs> syringe hand, and it's just like shit like that. Like make things kind of fucking lighthearted. Like we don't need to be so fucking serious all the time, and just make your fucking space comfortable. Ask yeah. ask the sex workers what they want in there, and take their suggestions seriously. I mean, they're gonna be the ones to best tell you what they want up. There is so much joy happening it's not just a bunch of like hapless junkies like yeah drug use is often a part of these people's stories and it's something that we want to continue to work with um you know from a harm reduction standpoint but these aren't people who just like stand around crying with needles hanging out of their arms all the time like while while men penetrate them like this is these are people they have fun they have joy in their lives some of them really like the way that they live like or love certain things and dislike certain other things and there is an idea in a lot of nonprofit and social services that you have to maintain so much earnestness in order to get any attention. Uh, and, and I think that that's born of competing for grant money, unfortunately. Like, but we don't all want to be an a- ASPCA commercial like Jesus. No, like we don't want to be playing that sad shit music. It, it, <laughs> no. <laughs> I, I, we, the sex workers in Lynn were like some of the funniest fucking people that I had ever met in my life. My favorite one was actually uh, this man. He was this like wonderful gay man. And like we, one of my favorite memories of working there and <laughs> my boss actually filmed it is we were blasting like a prayer by Madonna in the drop in. And he nice. was doing this wonderful fucking dance to it, like twerking better than any stripper I had ever oh my seen God. in my whole life. I'm like, <laughs> you are the best. Yeah, it's <laughs> moments like those that that probably help you with keeping the burnout at bay, right? Like, who, who, who else would you ever want to hang out with, you know? Once you've no. hung out with some street-based <laughs> sex workers, like, you're not going to find more a more fun crew. No, you're not. <laughs> Well, thank you so much for making time to hang out with me today. I really appreciate yeah, it. Today's episode was produced by me, Blair Hopkins, and brought to you in part by Swap Behind Bars. Music by New Orleans' own Johnny Sketch and the Dirty Notes. Check them out at johnnysketch.com. Special thanks, as always, to Alex Andrews. To contribute to the good work she's doing at Swap Behind Bars, visit swapbehindbars.org and remember... All in a Day's Sex Work is an ever-expanding narrative. If you are a sex worker, partner, patron, or other adult industry-adjacent person, I want to hear from you. Email me at info at adswproject.org. Please take a moment and rate and review us on iTunes or whatever podcast platform you are currently employing. It only takes a second and it helps us out a ton. 